everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Udi Ofer of the ACLU. He's the director of the Justice Division and deputy national political director. Welcome to our show, Udi. It's great to be on. Thank you. So let's start here. Uh, 14 states this week had elections. Uh, we've seen uh, some interesting results, criminal justice. L.A. looks like it's going to be headed to a runoff, although that's not for sure. Travis County in Texas looks like the progressive is heading to a runoff against the incumbent, which is going to be pretty interesting. Harris County news is not quite as good. So are we seeing a continuation of the advance of criminal justice reform in these elections or a decline? Look, I mean, I think there's no question whatsoever that we are moving in the right direction overall um, when it comes to, you know, the movement to end mass incarceration in the United States. I think it's always important not to look at this issue or momentum through any one individual you know, election cycle, let alone primary cycle, let alone a primary cycle in a particular state. I mean, you know, in California, there was, you know, just a couple of years ago, a bunch of reform DAs lost, but then Chesa Bodine, right, comes into office in San Francisco. So it's, you always got to take the long view on this. Um, um, and I think when it comes to that long view, there is no question that we are winning. And by we, I mean the movement to end mass incarceration. But we still have a very, 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 very long way to go. It's in, you know, um, um, I would say that if you're going to talk about this in terms of the 2020 elections, I would begin by first kind of taking a look at the presidential election. And this is the first year, I would say, ever that um, the issue of ending mass incarceration has become a top issue item where, by and large, candidates are trying to compete about who's better on criminal justice reform. And that just, it's, that's an anomaly when it comes to U.S. history, right? I mean, in many ways, right, the problem of mass incarceration was created by, you know, racist presidential politics, right? I mean, you know, you go all the way back to Barry Goldwater and, you know, and his introduction of kind of the tough on crime and racist rhetoric into presidential elections and how they have bled down to a local level and changed party platforms. So, you know, while mass incarceration is a local issue. It's, I mean, it's a nationwide problem, but it's a local issue. States have to fix the counties, localities, municipalities. 
the narrative around whether A, there's a problem, and B, what are the solutions is often created by presidential politics. And we're, we're in a much better place today than we were four years ago, eight years ago, you know, let alone you know, 12 or 16 years ago. When it comes to the state level work, I'm actually feeling pretty optimistic as well, right? I mean, we have momentum in so many states right now um, that I think are poised to continue passing aggressive reforms. I'm really excited for Michigan this year, um, and I think it's slated to do some really big things um, when it comes to the issue of pre-trial justice. There are numerous states that are starting to take on, you know, parole reform and probation reform. You know, we're going to have numerous ballot initiatives in November that are taking on sentencing laws and habitual offender laws and truth and sentencing laws. Um, so there's a lot that's going to happen in 2020. Having said all that, thinking about Super Tuesday that just, you know, happened this week. Um, yeah, look, I mean, we're still waiting to find out um, what is going to happen in L.A. We do know um, um, that, uh, you know, that the uh, the measure R, um, um, you know, that is a much more direct kind of, you know, decarceration measure did pass. And that's incredibly positive. When it comes to the DA races across the country, we're still waiting for some results. But, 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 you know, but there are other DA races that are going to happen this year that I'm partic- even more excited about, right? There's, there's big ticket DA races happening in Maricopa County, in Orleans Parish, in Oakland County, Michigan. So it's, it's, it's way too early to draw any conclusions about the politics of mass incarceration in 2020. Um, and I believe that there's a lot of momentum on our side. And I'll just mention, we've interviewed all those candidates, so uh, people can check out those podcasts as well. Um, But uh, yeah, um, you know, I was really excited uh, when I read uh, the platform on criminal justice reform by both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. It, It really took a page right out of the book, but, you know... Here we are this morning, Elizabeth drops out of the race. And I, I got to say, I, I think uh, I think Biden is going to end up winning this uh, in the end. Um, so here is a guy who was big supporter of the 1994 federal crime bill, toughened criminal sentences, accelerated mass incarceration. Does this have meaning or is was Biden in 1994 really just... Uh, you know, part of his times. Uh, he, he didn't transcend his times, but he, he went along with his times. What, what's the fair you know, reading there? Yeah. I mean, I take such a cynical view when it comes to politicians, you know, matter they're on the right or the left, right? Like, um, when a politician does something wrong, which they often do um, at the ACLU, right? Um, I see it as a failure in many ways of the movement, right? Where we need to create the political conditions where they have a self-interest to act our way, right? Um, because politicians, at the end of the day, are political beasts. You know, their primary goal in life, whether they admit it or not, and most of the time they won't admit it, is to get reelected or to get elected to higher office, right? Which is why oftentimes you see the boldest politicians are the ones who are term limited or, you know, are ending their career and just thinking about legacy. Look, I mean, Biden, there, 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 there is no question that that um, um, he helped build, and in some ways even you know was the leader on on on, the, on on creating mass incarceration in the United States, right? Beginning in the 80s, and then obviously the 1994 crime bill. Even though mass incarceration was already a huge problem by then, 
he made it even worse, right, by shepherding um, um, that legislation. There's no question about it. Um, today, he would not get away with with supporting those types of policies, um, um, you know, and therefore, you know, he his views are shifting, right? Um, there is no question that there's differences between the candidates. I mean, I constantly, you know, at ACLU, right, we're really proud of, um, you know, being able to get Bernie Sanders on record to say that he would restore voting rights for people who are currently incarcerated. He's the only candidate to have committed to that over the entire Democratic field. Um, Joe Biden is not committed to that. Um, at the same time, you know, the questionnaire that we've sent candidates, although Joe Biden never filled it out, he did respond to some of our questions on video. Um, you know, for the ACLU, our big goal for the 2020 elections when it comes to the mass incarceration space is that we wanted to get candidates to commit to a 50% decarceration goal during their presidential term. That was our big, the, the big addition that we wanted to make. And we purposefully didn't tie it into any one policy because there's a million different ways to get to a 50% decarceration goal, right? There's a lot of different policies and practices that you could implement, but we were much more, we believe in, you know, abolishing many prisons and depopulating prisons and jails. When we first thought of this idea, right, of trying to insert that into the presidential election, we were like, all right, maybe like one candidate will agree to it, two candidates will agree to it. As of today, 15 of the candidates for the Democratic primary have agreed on camera or in writing to the 50% decarceration goal, including the two, you know, big remaining candidates, uh, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. That's a big deal, right? That's a huge um, deal. It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. It would have been un unimaginable, even like, you know, Four, four years ago, or even two years ago, during the midterms, and it's a reflection of the moment that we're in, um, that it is okay for the vast majority of the presidential candidates to commit to a 50% decarceration, and we were explicit in that ask. We, we, we asked them to commit to it both on the federal level, where they have control over the system, and to commit to it um, in terms of a state goal, where they have less control, but they could help create incentives, and they committed to both. So that's a really, really big deal. And at the ACLU, we're going to hold their feet to the fire no matter who wins to make sure that they achieve that goal. The other observation I would make where, you know, it shows that times are changing is what the candidates are not saying. And I know that to be counterintuitive, right? But historically, right, one of our biggest struggles in the mass incarceration space has been this differentiation that candidates make between nonviolent offenses and violent offenses, right? It's something we constantly have to fight against because, right, we want to end mass incarceration for everyone. And, I, you know, I listen very closely to the rhetoric that comes out of, you know, politicians and their platforms. And look, there's still instances that absolutely people kind of make this all about marijuana offenses. That's how we end, you know, legalized marijuana will end mass incarceration. We all know that's not true. But by and large, you are seeing candidates not make that differentiation. You know, they're not saying this is, we'll end mandatory minimums only for nonviolent offenders, right? We need to end, you know, extreme sentences and all the, you know, we need to bail, you know, cash bail. They're not making those differentiations. And I think that's a really big deal too, because candidates are very careful, particularly presidential candidates and how they message. 
Um, and while they're not actively talking about how we also need to end mass incarceration for people convicted or alleged to have committed violence offenses, they're not throwing violence offenses under the bus like we've seen in past election cycles. So that's another reason that I'm, I'm optimistic, um, cautiously so. Look, I'm not trying to paint a picture that, that's, that we're in this great space, but, but I am optimistic in the sense of as someone who has studied presidential election cycles, as someone who's immersed in kind of state politics and local politics, we're seeing a shift. We're seeing a pretty big shift. We're seeing it in public opinion polls. Like I, we just finished doing six focus groups in three different states around the issue of clemency and mass clemency, something the ACLU or, you know, hopefully we'll soon launch a major campaign on this. And, you know, so I hear like, you know, folks, the way they talk about the criminal legal system, and you can tell that things are changing. People recognize that there are big problems. Now, we still need people to become more audacious in the solutions, but, we, but I feel fairly confident to say that we have seen a shift in public opinion and culture, and we've seen that bleed to the local politics, and we've seen it, you know, go up to the presidential level. And that's so, so that's, that's why I'm feeling cautiously optimistic. Well, and, and, and I agree with you. I, you know, I was throwing it out there because, you know, Biden becomes an interesting figure, I think, in all of this because his history is, is his history. And so, you know, the, and that's why I asked it that way. You know, is he an artifact of his times or, yeah. you know, or, or is this what he really believes? Well, he signed on to the 50%, right? You just told me that. Um, so, yeah. I mean, although he wouldn't, he wouldn't fill it out. I, I do have to just make sure the record is straight, right? He wouldn't submit the questionnaire, but we have it on camera and the video is on our website. And we're actually thinking of soon maybe going out public with it and pushing it out more. I mean, it is public already, but really pushing it out where he on camera commits to a 50% decarceration goal. So I think people need to understand what that means, because as you yeah. put it, you know, it's not just getting at the non uh the nonviolent, non-dangerous, non-serious offenses. You gotta, you gotta actually hit things that are gonna hurt, things that are gonna be controversial, things that people are gonna yeah. push back on to get it down to fifty percent. Yeah. So this is where I have a few answers to that. Right. First of all, that is absolutely accurate when you look at the nation as a whole. Right. When you look at national statistics in an aggregate way you see, right, that, you know, of the 1.3 million people in state prisons all over the country, 700,000 are in for violent offenses ranging anywhere from assault to murder, right? That is absolutely true. I will say this, and it's part of the reason that, you know, the ECLU recently finished a, a three-year project where we came out with 50 state blueprints and Washington, D.C., provide an individual roadmap for every state on how to achieve a 50% decarceration goal. No one has ever done anything like that before. It was a huge project. And we have a website called 50 State Blueprints, ACLU.org or something, and you can find a blueprint for each one of your states. And it's an individualized blueprint that looks at who's incarcerated in your state, what are they incarcerated for, and there's even a chart at the end that tells you, um, here's the impact that getting people out of prison for certain types of offenses would have. And you could do your own math as how to get to that 50% goal. And the reason we wanted to do that is because the story, you know, every state is at a different place in many ways. And while there's a national narrative that's really important, 
it is true that there are some states where it is still a lot of it, and you could achieve a 50% decarceration goal by focusing still on, you know, the drug-related offenses, the property-related offenses, right? And that is true in some states. I mean, that's just factual. In other states, it is absolutely not true, right? Because there's a real range in the states and who has gone through the decarceration movement already, right? So states like New Jersey, New Jersey leads the nation in, in decarceration. Uh, New Jersey has seen about a 36% decline in its prison population over the past 20 years or so. Um, so in New Jersey, you know, you have a very different incarcerated population than in places like Oklahoma, right, which has the highest incarceration rate in the world, or Louisiana, which has the second highest incarceration rate in the world. So, so that's where, you know, we, we try to run campaigns in every state that is individualized to what is specifically happening in that state, but we make sure we do it in a way that doesn't compromise any work across the country and the future work that we'll have to do in that state, right? So, you know, in Oklahoma, I'll give you an example. I guess Oklahoma, to me, is one of the most interesting stories when it comes to the mass the movement and mass incarceration. Literally every year since 2016, um, we have had a major victory in Oklahoma. It doesn't usually get a lot of national attention because it's Oklahoma and it's you know, it's flyover country, but we're heavily invested there. In fact, today we have people gathering signatures for our next ballot initiative there. But in 2016, so Donald Trump won Oklahoma by the widest margin in the nation. I mean, Oklahoma is as red as it gets in the United States. Those same voters that pulled the lever, you know, to vote for Donald Trump also voted for two ballot initiatives that you could argue were some of the most progressive left, left, lefty ballot initiatives in recent memory, right? They defelonized um, all, all personal drug possession. So whether it was, you know, a, any drugs wasn't just about marijuana, you know, meth, crack, cocaine, and marijuana. They defelonized it from a felony to a misdemeanor. And they, they, they raised the felony threshold on property offenses from $500 to $1,000. And... The second ballot, they voted to reinvest any savings back into communities. So not to just, you know, fill up the government coffers, but actually to reinvest it back into communities to help with like social safety nets and so forth. This was in Oklahoma. These were the same voters who voted for Donald Trump. It was a major victory. And, and, and you know, and, but that victory was only, so, so, th so that happened. But then the following year, we realized, you know, we need to apply that victory retroactively because it was only forward-looking. So then in, in 2019 or 2018, we, or 2019, we get a law passed that takes those ballot initiatives, applies it retroactively. And then just a few months ago, you saw hundreds of people on a single day walk out of Oklahoma prisons because the governor responded, a Republican governor, Governor Stitt, by commuting the sentences of hundreds of people. It was, more, it was about 500 on a single day who were incarcerated for drug-related offenses, but the law has changed since then. That was Oklahoma, right? Now, that kind of population wouldn't be so impacted if this effort was happening in New York or California or New Jersey, because in those states, while there's still many, many, many problems, most of the problems, you know, when it comes to drug-related offenses, we're at a better place. So as a nationwide narrative, there's no, 
no question that we need to take on violent offenses and non-violent offenses. But it is also still true that we need to individualize it for each state, which is why you may see like sometimes I get like, there's a lot of kind of national advocates that make like, you know, grand statements about it's all about violent offenses or it's all about non-violent offenses. And I'm always saying, you know what, it depends. It's about everything. It kind of depends what state you're in. Um, um, so I always try to make sure that they seal you when we do our work. We're hyper-focused on what are the needs of that particular state, and we do the work that doesn't hurt efforts in other states, which I do think continues to be a problem in the mass incarceration space and historically had been a problem where people are so fixated on the short-term win that they kind of throw everything else under the bus. And that's something we have to end. We cannot do that. It's not good for anyone. And it's really interesting. I mean, you brought up Oklahoma. We just did a story out of Oklahoma maybe two weeks oh, ago. Um, well, uh, there was a weird case where in Tulsa, the DA's office was using these interns to, uh, basically, uh, try cases without any supervision. Yeah. Uh, And yeah, I know we have, we have a ton of lawsuits in Oklahoma. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Don't read anything that I just said to suggest that somehow things are good in Oklahoma. It was just more of like, it's the deepest red state. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But but the weird thing is that, you know, so in Tulsa, the same electorate that's voting for Trump, that's voting for these justice reforms, also is voting for this DA who's yeah. one of the worst in the country. Uh, so it, yeah. it's really all over the place. No, it really is. I totally agree with that. It's a challenge. Um, yeah, no, look, we, we uh, look, I just came out again of like two weeks of like this focus groups where, um, you know, we sat down with, you know, white Republicans and Latino Democrats and black Democrats and older women, younger women, and just like a lot of different categories of people to try to better understand the prism that they look um, uh, at these issues through. And there is a lot of schizophrenia, right? Like there is, I mean, look, at the end of the day, people, I don't know, I'm still like digesting what I've learned over the last couple of weeks in these focus groups. But I think one of the things that I've realized is how just hyper-partisan we are and in, in, in how it influences the way we look at an issue. So we talked, one of the things that we talked about with these focus groups was um, about Alice Marie Johnson, right? And like, how do people react to her story, right? Of being commuted by President Trump. And, you know, people's response ended up being a lot of times triggered by more about it having been done by President Trump rather than by her individual case. Um, so I think that bleeds a bit into the DA politics. You know, one of the greatest challenges we have in the local DA work is that by and large, it's still like our, you know, um, it's very hard to, ch- to, to, to challenge an incumbent because uh, because because people just are comfortable with the status quo, and also they will look at any election through a very political prism um, that they'll just trust the Republican candidate or they'll trust the Democratic candidate, depending on their political leaning. And that is really hard to overcome. Um, similarly, you know, within a, an individual primary, there's still like, it's very hard to overcome. And you've seen this play out right in the LA County case uh, race. Um, if, if, you have the, if you have the seal of approval of your party, even within a primary, if you're considered more of like the status quo 
um, uh, party candidate, it's very hard to be the challenger coming out from from the outside. Um, so, and, and I think part of it is on substance, on policy, but I just think a lot of it is, is actually separate from the issue of criminal justice reform or the issue of mass incarceration. It's just about human behavior and how we've been conditioned to just like either think along party lines or just be very comfortable with the status quo. And, 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 and as a reformer, someone who is trying to, you know, change the status quo, it's just an additional hump that we always have to get over. So that's why I'm not sure I would read into these the DA races and their outcomes in a state like Oklahoma as to what voters would vote on on a ballot. And But look, but we'll see, right? We have a major ballot initiative in Oklahoma this year that takes on the state's habitual offender law. You know, that's one of the hardest things to take on because, you know, these are quote-unquote repeat offenders, Right. Um, um, and it's going to be on the ballot, and we're doing signature gathering as we speak. Um, in fact, we had our best day signature um, gathering during Super Tuesday, where we surpassed our normal goals and how many um, signatures to gather. And we'll see. We'll see how people across Oklahoma will vote on reforming the habitual offender law. So it's really interesting. I was in uh, San Francisco last week, and... Uh, saw the press conference by the new DA, Chesa Bodine, there. Yeah. And, you know, he moved major ground uh, because they're knocking off all pretext stops. So any, any stop that's based on kind of this stop and frisk type of notion um, where, you know, they don't have a... They, they, they don't have probable cause to believe that they have, uh, you know, contraband on them. They're not going to prosecute. And then at the same time, uh, they're throwing out enhancements. So um, he's not going to charge prior strikes. He's not going to charge prior prison. And he's not going to charge gang enhancements. So this is a major step forward. It's incredible. No, I mean, I agree with everything you just said. I think um, the reforms that are coming out of San Francisco right now are some of the most audacious and it's setting a new bar and it's really exciting. And this is why, again, you know, I, I use the example of California, right? The 2018 cycle where everyone was, when there were defeats of reform candidates and everyone was like, all right, here we go. The prosecutorial reform movement is dead. We can't get anything done. I don't know if you, I'm sure you remember that. And here we are two years later having this conversation. Yeah, well, I so lived I in think, a county yeah. where I know. Yeah, it, you know, um, I, I mean, it was a public defender against a three-term incumbent. He didn't get any of the money from Soros, and he came within uh, two thousand votes of knocking off this incumbent. He had no yeah. business being in the race against. You jump over to Sacramento County, and they put in like half a million dollars into that race. And the guy got blown out against the incumbent. I mean, yeah. everything's yeah. local, yeah. right? Uh, I mean, so, you know, you think, and it oh, was one of the lessons from the 2018. Yeah. And it was one of the lessons from the 2018 uh, DA experience is that the movement was kind of spread too thin. Um, so I know at the ACLU, we're becoming much more, uh, I don't know what the right word is, disciplined, I guess, like in you know, when we take something on, we're kind of doing it in all in. So not to spread ourselves too thin. Um, but at the same time, it's really important to create momentum, right? And to have movement orientation and to let things kind of happen on their own. 
And by the way, that's where I think like, you know, you have a successful movement, right? I mean, I just remember the DA space, right? I came out to the National ACLU in October of 2016, you know, at that time, you know, in the, you know, at the National ACLU, there weren't a ton of people talking about kind of these DA prosecutorial reform work outside of our capital punishment project, which has always been about, you know, bad DAs. Um, but, you know, we decided the ACLU, and there, but there, there had already been a movement, but it was a really young movement. It was very few organizations, you know, it was organizations like Color of Change. And then, yes, you know, George Soros was spending money on this, but there wasn't like anything close to where we are today. But we decide we're going to, you know, uh, prioritize this issue. And at that time, there was a, a race that was just beginning in Philadelphia and the ad community there was really starting to form together. Anyway, we get involved in the Larry, you know, in the Philadelphia DA race in, in 2017. And it's just been nonstop since then. And, you know, at the ACLU, right, we have 53 affiliates and they're like, you know, everyone, it's like, you could see the changes now because we get overwhelmed with, um, it's just, there's such a momentum shift that it's just, it's happening all over the country right now, whether it's led by advocates or not where the conversation in these local DA races has changed. It just has. Um, um, and that's incredible. And to, and to think that that, you know, if we would have talked four years ago, to think where we are today, we would never have foreshadowed this. Um, even though we were trying to create it, right? And there's a lot of great organizations that were doing that. But you just see this huge shift in momentum um, I mean, look, there's still a ton more to go. You know, there's a whole, you know, I saw you at Hastings Law School recently, right, where there was a conversation about what is a reform prosecutor? What is a progressive prosecutor? Are those terms real or not? Is there a contradiction? And I totally, I, I'm, you know, I actually try not to use the term reform prosecutor or progressive prosecutor because, you know, I take kind of very... Uh, you know, largely abolitionist frame through this. You know, we're looking to defund the system, to shrink the system dramatically. We want to close this, much of the system. Um, but but there is no question that there's been a huge shift, and it's a cultural shift, right? It's gone to the point where the president is like talking about it, and and the attorney general, and it's 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 incredible. But with that comes risk, right? With that comes you know, you can't control what's happening as much because it's just now everywhere, right? There are thousands of DA offices and each one of those becomes like a microclimate now, right? And, and, and local elections are very local, right? A lot of times they're on bread and butter issues. So that's why I also try to be disciplined and not, um, you know, overstating a, the significance of any one DA race. I mean, I know like recently there was like an article about how the L.A. County DA race is a referendum on criminal justice reform in the United States. I just don't buy that. It's just not true. It's an incredibly important race. There's no question about it. But no one DA race is a referendum on a movement. Um, 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 but, 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 but when you look at it from a totality of the circumstances, when you look at it over the span of several years, we are moving in the right direction. And where I feel like a personal responsibility is, it's, it's more making sure that we don't lose this moment because the backlash, you know, it's not always, you know, the, we're, we're going to, I feel like we still have a bit more time until the momentum is over, but at some point it's going to end. And we need to be in a position now where we can reflect back and say, okay, we did some transformational change because that's ultimately what it's about. 
Well, we're not looking here to tinker at the edges. We're not looking here to have now better prosecutors. No, we're looking to change dramatically a system, to transform a system, to abolish a system in many ways. And that's why I'm excited about, you know, a lot of uh, what's happening in San Francisco. Because also when you hear, you know, uh, Chester Bodine talk about this issue, he does talk about it in many ways about, you know, working himself out of a job, right? Of like, you know, this is why so many advocates were upset at Kimog, right? In Harris County, where it's like she kept, you know, she wants more money, you know, but she believes that she'll do it for the greater good. But that's not what this movement is about, right? It's not about giving more money to DA offices so that they could do social welfare work. No, we're, we're looking to shrink the system. And that's the lens, at least so far, I've seen the San Francisco, San Francisco DA look at things through, and that's what makes me excited about what's happening there. Well, what's really interesting, you know, we've talked to now probably 15 to 20 either candidates or actual DAs from across the country. And what's really interesting is there's kind of this common thread of policies that they're pushing. But if you talk to them, they really are locally based. It's not like there's this, you know, big hand moving everybody across the page. No, these are people that have kind of come up organically. They all are rooted in their own local experience and they're all very impressive. They're articulate, they're very intelligent, um, and, and they're very committed and passionate. It, it's a really impressive movement to talk to these people because you don't feel like you're talking to a politician. You feel like you're talking to a reformer. Yeah, I know. It's so interesting. I mean, I reflect that. Look, I went to law school 1998 to 2001. I mean, right. And at that time, I mean, you were, you know, if you were like a progressive law student, a lefty law student, which is what I was, right? you were not thinking about going into a DA's office. That wasn't even the question, right? Like that was what you were against in many ways. But you go down to law schools and it's changing, right? Like, um, you know, the, the, the super lefty students are like, okay, maybe this is the path I need to take so that I could work within the system to transform the system and really change it. So it's like a total shift in even like the whole yeah, it's a cultural shift where you have not public defenders running for office, like in Maricopa County, like in, you know, San Francisco. Um, and yeah, they're, they come to it. They don't, I get what you're saying, where it doesn't feel like politicians, right? Because all too often, you know, DA offices were just stepping stones to become a U.S. senator or a congressman or president, right? I mean, I think the prison policy initiative, I think, um, a few years ago came out with a great study that showed, you know, what percentage of like federal lawmakers or DAs at any point. And it showed it was really kind of this political stepping stone. Look, a lot of that is still true. So I'm not minimizing it. And again, we have, you know, there are about 20, you know, there are 2,400 or so DA offices across the country. So, it's, you know, and it's still true that the reform movement is still just a portion of that. There's no question. But so it's hard to speak in like, you know, universal terms. But you definitely see that change in who's making decisions to run for office. Are they doing it because they look at it as a political stepping stone? Or are they doing it because they're, they believe in racial justice? They believe in ending racism, right? They believe in, you know, you know ending pretrial detention in the United States, which, you know, DA has so much unilateral authority over. We're seeing that, and that's where it's exciting. I totally agree with that. So I want to talk about Colorado, of all places. Um, so yeah. I, um, 
I was again in San Francisco uh, last week and they had one of the state reps uh, from Colorado and Colorado's legislature voted to end the death penalty. I know. And I was involved. Yeah. Yeah. One of the crazy things that she said was there are three people on death row in, in Colorado. Yeah. They're all African-Americans and they all went to the same high school. Yeah. I mean, yeah. is that crazy? <laughs> it's crazy. And there is a real movement right now to, to, to pressure the governor to commute their sentences, maybe on the same day when he signs the repeal bill into law or shortly before or after. It is wild, right? Yes. And it's, look, it's a theme we see all over the country, right? The reason the Oakland County, Michigan DA race is going to be like a really contested DA race this year is because that's like the worst county in the state when it comes to juvenile life without parole. Why? Because the DA there believes adamantly juvenile life without parole, right? And this speaks, yeah, the DAs have just have so much discretion where they act, they can act as an island and just implement their own policies. So yeah, we see these extreme examples where in Colorado, there are three people on, on death row and all of them went to the same high school and all of them are black men, right? Um, so it's, um, it's a real problem. Look, I gotta say, I'm excited for, I'm actually, I was excited that you raised Colorado because Colorado is on fire in the sense, in a good way, right? Like where there's a lot of reforms happening um, right last year, it started kind of down the bail reform path and, 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 you know, eliminated cash bail for petty and low-level offenses. That happened last year. This year, you know, the movement is to do more comprehensive bail reform and kind of revamp the whole, uh, you know, pretrial justice system. Colorado also, and, you know, rep uh, voted to repeal the death penalty, which was, like, amazing because... You know, this has been years in the making, and it was really hard to get over that hump, but it happened. Like, to me, Colorado is in many ways like a bellwether state where you see it, just the momentum is changing. And by the way, and I'm happy that you raised the death penalty, because one of the things that I've been frustrated on, there's still a lot of uh, uh, siloing within the criminal justice reform movement between different spaces. You know, right now, there's no question there's a really, you know, impactful movement to end mass incarceration. By and large, that has not included the death penalty for many of these, you know, organizations or individuals who are working in this area, right? It's about mass incarceration. So then you have the death penalty space. Then you have, like, the police reform space, where a lot of times it's not part necessarily of the movement. Then you have, like, uh, the anti-solitary confinement space. I actually think when I reflect on the state of the movement right now, I think there needs to be a lot more kind of intersectionality and coordination between all the various aspects of it. I'm also, I also think beyond the criminal justice reform movement, like in the immigration space and the criminal, you know, in the mass incarceration space, but just even within just the criminal legal space, um, you know, there, there needs to be more coordination. I see that slowly happening more. Right. So, for example, in the death penalty space, like how much do you rely on an innocence narrative, you know, to repeal the death penalty? How much do you rely on, you know, offering mandatory life without parole as an alternative to the death penalty where, you know, right next door, you have a movement to end mass incarceration that's about ending mandatory life without parole. Right? It's about going beyond an innocence frame. I'm not, I, 
in my view, like there just needs to be more coordination and more intersectionality in how we do this work. And by and large, I saw a lot of that happening in Colorado, which made me also more excited, where I felt like one movement wasn't being kind of thrown under the bus in the name of another movement. Like so much of the orientation was about racial justice. And I think we saw that in California too recently with the movement to end death penalty in California. It is about kind of racism within the system. Um, and I think that's the right way to move forward as a more cohesive movement. That's the other area, kind of the movement space that right now I, I'm excited about because I feel like those walls are starting to break down and there's more coordination. And I think Colorado is a prime example of that. Well, I think I think you raise a good point. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I'm seeing, at least, is that, you know, where some of that coordination is coming from is these progressive prosecutors are having to take on all of these issues. They can't just pick and choose. So, you know, when we're talking to people, we're talking about mass incarceration. We'll talk about the death penalty, depending on where they are. And we'll talk about police accountability. And we'll talk about, you know, racial disparities. And, and guess what? The DA is dealing with all of those issues. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Well, listen, uh, it's been a great conversation, but uh, we're actually out of time, believe it or not. Um, so That was fast. <laughs> I know. I know 40 minutes goes by uh, quick when you're having fun. Uh, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on our show today. Thank you. All right. That's been Udi Ofer from the ACLU talking about criminal justice issues around the country. This is Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald, inviting you to join us next time for more tales from the criminal justice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.